what is happening in Ukraine, what is happening on the front line, what is the impact of the war on Ukrainian energy and economy, what is happening in Crimea and how Ukraine tries to attack it. This is a weekly digest by Ukraine World, our podcast Explaining Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, who is in charge of Ukraine Crisis Media Center International Outreach. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com/ukraineworld. We spend the majority of your support to help people affected by this war. Tanya, let's talk about these key events over the past week from the 15th of August until 21st of August. And let's try to focus on several important, the most important topics. So what were these important topics for you this week? Well, let's start maybe with Crimea, because Crimea this week was a kind of a turning point in Crimea. Uh, the week started with the creation of, uh, of a kind of council, um, uh, government council, uh, which is would be focused on the deoccupation of Crimea. So this topic is extremely sensible for Russia. And uh, on Tuesday already we had some... Um, some strikes, or maybe not strikes, but at least explosions, uh, major explosions in Jankoy. Jankoy this is situated in the north of the Crimea Peninsula. It's important uh, logistic hub, so there is a railway, railway which was damaged, and explosions were extremely, uh, extremely strong. So, um, Ukrainian government uh, is not stating that this is a result of uh, of action of the Ukrainian army, but we can um, we can seriously think about that. And this strike uh, on Tuesday in Jankoy was followed by several others. For example, in Kerch, in Kerch, where the bridge. Uh, which was constructed by Russia after annexation of Crimea back in 2014. It is so these strikes are getting closer to this sacred place for for Russian Federation because this bridge is a kind of symbol for Russia that they constructed in order to link Crimea to Russia. So this week we started talking seriously about the not. Uh, virtual but real possibility of the occupation of Crimea. Many media were talking about that, were trying to analyze that, and many Ukrainians are making jokes today about that next summer we'll spend in Crimea. And it's quite easy to, to compare what the state of mood now is what was happening a year ago or two years ago. After, um, Russia, and, uh, after Russia occupied Crimea, it was not a realistic scenario for Ukraine to get it back. Uh, so we were sure that one day Crimea will be back, but it was a kind of a long, long story. But now with this full invasion of Russia, so we understand and with the strikes which show that Ukrainian army is capable to strike inside Crimea because there were also uh, strikes in Sebastopol in this uh, very symbolic um, uh, airport of Belbek, Belbek, which was um, t- 
taken by, by Russians back in 2014. We followed that conflict from the very beginning and we remember these images of Ukrainian army trying to defend this military airport back in 2014 without any success. And it was so, so, such a pity for, for millions of Ukrainians to see how weak was Ukrainian army at that point. And when now, during this week, there is a huge strike, we don't know exactly strike or explosion, that doesn't matter, but... Uh, this airport was was touched, and there were huge detonations in this airport as well. So it it showed that Crimea is no more protected by 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 Russian air defense, but it is protected. But but Ukrainian army is is capable now to attack, and uh, now the scenario that Crimea will be back uh, seems to be much more realistic than a couple of years ago. Exactly, and now we we see kind of a panic among the Russian citizens or the citizens who are living in Crimea that uh, they're trying to leave the peninsula and uh, uh, we see the big traffic jams. Of course, we should not probably exaggerate it because many Ukrainians were also trying to leave the country with huge traffic jams from the first days of the war. And uh, this doesn't mean that the country simply stops to uh, to fight, of course not. Uh, but the same pictures we also see from Belgorod, uh, which is a Russian city close to Kharkiv. And uh, it seems that also Russians are living, living there, take this situation very seriously. So uh, we also have the information that uh, uh, this strike on uh, air bases near Saki... Uh, last week, about which we were talking last week, it seems that they really put a huge damage to the Russian air force. And some people, some sources are saying that up to the half of this air force was destroyed, uh, situate, uh, situated uh, in these air bases. So one of the scenarios, uh, upcoming scenarios, can be that Russians will try to protect Crimea more and maybe this will destruct uh, their forces from other other territories in the eastern Ukraine, in the southern Ukraine. And it seems that the tactics, and we, we have repeated it numerous, numerous times, seems that the tactics of the Ukrainian army is to cut the logistics, cut supplies of the Russians in the southern Ukraine, in the eastern Ukraine, and uh, just to make a situation for the Russian army, for example, in Kherson Oblast, uh, very difficult, very dangerous in terms of uh, food supply, ammunition supply, maybe just force them to leave. And uh, this will be, this can be probably a scenario that Ukrainians are developing right now. Yes, exactly. Exactly about this logistics and about cutting different f battlefields one from another because we do know that uh, Russians, they do use Crimea in order to, um, to, uh, to, to, to make these supplies coming from Russia to Crimea and then to Kherson Oblast. So if you cut a railway, for example, as it happened in Jankoy, they are starting getting real problems. And then you cut, for example, uh, left side of the Dnieper uh, River from the right side of the Dnieper River uh, in, in Hersono, around in, in this uh, region. So it means that they have some some major, major problems already. We, we have some information about that um, 
high uh, military, the uh, Russian military, they leave already the uh, right bank of uh, Dnieper River in Kherson, so they're trying to protect, so they're leaving soldiers on this uh, right bank, uh, but the, it creates problems because soldiers cannot be too far away from, from the centers. Um, but they're trying to protect themselves and they don't feel secure. That's very important psychologically as well for, for Russian troops. They don't feel insecurity in the south and they don't feel secure in, in Crimea now. And this is extremely important psychologically also for Ukrainians because, as I already said, for many years, Crimea was a kind of a, a kind of a dream because they, we, we could not imagine such a quick uh, return of Crimea to Ukraine. Let's talk about uh, some other regions. We have been to Kharkiv, uh, the city in the eastern Ukraine, uh, with the volunteer and information trip. And uh, um, this is also an opportunity for us to thank you all for uh, oh, to all our, pa- our patrons who are supporting us on Patreon because uh, we really try to use this money to help people affected by the by this war and to help Ukrainian defenders. Uh, we have supplied a, a electricity generator for for them. We have supplied some optical optical things like binoculars and and some other stuff. And of course, we have we had another another opportunity to look at the city. We will make a separate podcast on this. But uh, just one quick reaction, quick impression. Of course, you cannot compare Kharkiv with uh, with Kyiv, with Lviv with some other cities which are occasionally hit by the Russian missiles. Kharkiv is shelled constantly, every night, every evening, every morning. And we have experienced uh, this on, on ourselves. We have spent three nights in Kharkiv, and two of them were very loud. And by saying they were very loud, I mean 10 to 12 missiles coming to the city and to the oblast. And uh, the situation is like this. You, you're just reading Telegram channels about Kharkiv, and uh, they are just posting messages like, the first missile has has been launched, it will fall down in two minutes. And in two minutes you, you hear the explosion. And then the uh, the second missile was launched, it will fall down in two minutes. And indeed in two minutes you, you hear the huge explosion. This is, this is how the things are going on. And unfortunately there are dead uh, people almost from all, all every this, uh, or such strikes. One of the most bloody uh, was a strike on a dormitory, on a, on a hostel, and uh, the, the current figure is 18 people died, unfortunately, mm-hmm. 18 people. Yes, just a quick uh, remark. We'll talk separately about Kharkiv because we have plenty of things to tell you about Kharkiv and also about region. We visited region, so don't miss this podcast, but maybe a quick reaction. So um, you have not only missiles which are... Um, which are in Kharkiv, but also artillery fire. And even in this uh, uh, iPhone application, um, you have you can have, for example, in Kharkiv, uh, air alert, but also artil- possibility of, of artillery strike. And with it, when it comes to artillery strike, it's really the distance between two strikes is around uh, 15 seconds. So you are hearing these sounds all the day, lo- sometimes all the day long or a big part of the day. And uh, the most terrifying maybe in night because uh, during the night, uh, people uh, 
just imagine you are living in a city where you cannot sleep properly from each night. So every night, every night you are awake, by, you are awake by, by these strikes and you cannot sleep and you are reading news and you are trying to detect where this, which, which building is destroyed and why. So this, this explains why uh, a lot of people uh, uh, left Kharkiv, but still uh, what we observed, a huge part still is still here. But let us say maybe the half of the population is still here. People try to survive. They try to support their city. They are volunteering. They are doing a lot of necessary things for the army. Um, so that's it. Yes, and... Um Again, a more detailed account of, of the situation in Kharkiv and Kharkiv Oblast in our one of our next podcasts. Russians are continuing shelling Ukrainian cities, Ukrainian regions almost uh, every every night. Uh, tonight we had the information about the shelling in Dnipropetrovsk region. And I think the information is there that there are injured people, including, if I'm not mistaken, four children injured, some of them very severely. Uh, so unfortunately, our kids are dying as well, and and children are dying. And um, on the personal note, we can say that every day we receive the information about our the death of our friends, uh, of people who went to the front line, of people whom whom we knew, and this is of course psychologically extremely extremely difficult. And um, also some strikes during this week on Mykolaiv today, but also several days ago where a university of Mohila um, University was a, st- a stroke so there were huge damage to this university and uh, it's extremely painful for us because it's, it's a part of our university Kiev Mohila Academy here in Kiev and uh, what we understand is that Russians try uh, try to strike uh, big buildings because they suppose that there might be some some military equipment inside. Even if, for example, the mayor of the city posted several times the video stating that there was nothing, so no no military presence here, but Russians continue to strike and this is a huge damage to not only to to human lives and to infrastructure, but also to what we call educational, cultural heritage of Ukraine. So we will need years um, to reconstruct all that. Yes, so yeah, this is this is a sad reality, but at the same time we see how Ukrainians are continuing to fight and that they are becoming more and more ambitious. We will talk in detail in a minute. So we are continuing our Explaining Ukraine podcast. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. My co-host is Tetyana Oharkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Let's talk about some, some things, let's analyze what is going on, analyze some consequences of, of what is going on. And one of the important consequences is what is happening in Ukrainian energy sector. Because Russians are trying really to to make a big impact on this, and uh, Ukraine World has talked to Roman Nitsovich, who is a research director at Dixie Group, who is a reputable Ukrainian um, energy-focused think tank. So the key points in our analysis, you can also read it on our website, ukraineworld.org. We make real, very short analytical briefs. 
after talking to uh, to very good Ukrainian experts. So it's important to know that one-third of Ukrainian power generation capacities uh, is located on the territories which are currently occupied by the Russian forces. Imagine, one-third. And uh, right now we are talking really about huge, huge problems in the fall, in the winter, because power generation is also heat generation. And uh, uh, everybody here, even in Kiev, is trying to prepare ourselves for uh, for a situation when during winter we either do not have heating at all, and the winters in Ukraine are very cold, or we have the temperature in the houses, in the apartments, which is much lower than we have expected, for example. Or people are trying to uh, think about how to live in countryside houses and uh, make uh, make the heating on on wood for example on on furnaces on ovens this is also the the reality uh in the eastern ukraine if we take eastern ukraine if we take some cities like slovyansk kramatorsk there is already clear situation that there will be no heating there is still no no electricity right now so there is increasing e- evacuation of these people, right? Yeah, and also we can mention Kharkiv here because uh, during our visit to Kharkiv, people were talking about the possibility that there will be no heating in at least uh, the half of the um, half of Kharkiv because the Russian army has already destroyed a part of these uh, of these stations, so they will be suffering a lot during summer, and they expect that even more people will leave the city because it's impossible to live without heating. And what is happening now in Energodar, in this nuclear pl- plant in Energodar, the Parisian nuclear plant, is also coming in this direction because during this week there were a, kind, a couple of uh, declarations coming from the Russian side uh, which we can interpret in a way that they will be trying to cut off this nuclear station uh, from at least Ukrainian uh, system. We don't know exactly how technically this, is, this would be possible and if they are going to connect it to Russia or not. This is a huge discussion and this is extremely complicated issue. But uh, if it happens, uh, just imagine that the, the whole south of Ukrainian, Ukrainian coast, I mean, uh, Kherson, but also these southern regions, they will be without without energy and it will complicate things for for people living on these territories, occupied territories at that very moment. So what Russians will be trying to do, uh, maybe, is to connect this Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which is the biggest in Europe, as we know, to the Russian electricity system and to Rosatom, right? So now it's it's a part of Energoatom, uh, the, the the Ukrainian nuclear power enterprise, and they they will try to connect it to Rosatom. And the, the Dixie Group made a, a an analysis uh, of the foreign projects of this uh, of this Rosatom. It, it appears that much of its uh, revenues come comes from abroad. Seven point point five billion dollars uh, out of the total of sixteen billion dollars in twenty twenty. Seven point five are getting abroad. So these are revenues of Rosatom, which are which are going from abroad, and this is very important because this means that uh, this company is also fragile. So if if the Western sanctions, the international sanctions are applied to this company. Uh, it will it will face um, a very very difficult uh, situation, 
Another thing which is also very important is that, of course, um, and as, as Roman Nitsovich from Dixie Group told us in this, in this brief, is that uh, the situation in the nuclear power plant is really unprecedented because if the external power supply of the plant is interrupted and the backup generators will fail, then they will, the, the nuclear fuel will be not cooled and this can lead to a situation of a possible nuclear disaster. And uh, the Russian nuclear blackmail, uh, as, as uh, Roman is, is, told, is telling us, is actually the first in history. Uh, a quote, Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine is the first military conflict which creates direct threat to a nuclear facility. And this we, we, are, we are coming back to this uh, topic we have discussed earlier that Russians are really a country which is doing a nuclear terrorism, which, which threatens a nuclear disaster to the whole of Europe uh, by, by taking this nuclear power plant as a, as a military object. Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, we also learned that Russia is recognized like a terrorist state by Latvia and by Ukraine, and other countries are still considering this possibility. This is important for Ukraine that Russia is recognized as such, so because there will be more sanctions and more pressure on what they are doing now. But at that very moment, we still don't know if they will manage to to to, to use the how, what what this what is real plan with this Energodar um, nuclear station uh, situation is extremely extremely complicated they uh, were trying to organize a day off for people who were working at the station they're trying to 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 organize something Ukrainian military were saying that they were pre preparing the Russians were preparing a provocation on the station it was planned for the 19th of August 19th of August is over nothing happened so we are still in this uh, situation when we wait what will be going on and uh, coming back to Energoatom the Ukrainian nuclear power enterprise the thing is that this was a highly profitable enterprise. Uh, so in 2021, it had 30 million of uh, dollars of net income in the in the first half of 2021. Now in the first half of uh, 2022, it had 131 million dollars net loss. And of course, this is also connected, I think, to the situation on the Zaporizhia nuclear, uh, nuclear power plant. This is what Russians are doing to Ukrainian economy. We also had another analysis on our website by, made by Ihor Fursai, a well-known Ukrainian investment banker, but also a commentator on Ukrainian economy, economic issues. And uh, he's actually saying that he's he's looking at the the financial situation, and he's saying that, of course, um, Ukrainians are needed. Uh, Ukrainian National Bank is is printing money to 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 give this money to the economy, but of course, it creates huge huge inflation. We now uh, have seen the devaluation, very important. I mean, maybe twenty five, thirty percent devaluation of the Ukrainian currency, hryvnia, and uh, National Bank was. Um, making the fixed exchange rates, but then it decided to devaluate the Ukrainian currency. But actually, 
in the on the real market the the value of the ukrainian currency is always a few hryvnias lower than it 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 is in the national bank so this is this is also the situation uh also we asked whether russian assets uh, can be used which are confiscated can be used to rebuild this economy ukrainian economy afterwards this is still a big question whether they they can be used uh, legally to do that and uh, uh so the question is of course from which resources uh, which resources will be used to to make this huge reconstruction which will be needed after the war just to, gi- to give you understanding no real reconstruction is now possible if we are talking about houses if we are talking about infrastructural objects roads bridges maybe yes and this is something that is going on but houses private houses this is still a mid term future yes indeed so we observed many villages which were devastated and people are still waiting for official decision for this official paper stating how how much uh, you can evaluate this damage and then to proceed to reconstruction but we can imagine an in economy where everything is so problematic they will be extremely difficult for these families to to continue let's turn to another topic and let's talk about diplomacy yeah, what happened in diplomatic front during this week maybe the most important uh, event here was this meeting between turkish president erdogan the general secretary of uh, united nations um guterres and zelensky president of ukraine in lviv it was a meeting where erdogan visited ukraine for the first time uh, starting from the full scale invasion of russia here in ukraine many topics were discussed uh, what we what we know from turkish press is that turkish press was presenting this uh, meeting like a diplomatic effort of uh, erdogan Uh, in order to find a diplomatic uh, way for this conflict so like a mediator so they were presenting erdogan president erdogan like a mediator in this conflict to f- to find a pac- not a military but a pacific way to to resolve the the conflict but here in ukraine the reactions were quite different and the expectations were quite different there were some fears about these uh, attempts to find a diplomatic solution because we do know that in a diplomatic uh, solution ukraine will be forced to to make some concessions on the territory and if we do so we understand that russia will not stop here they will take time um, make a pause for to reinforce their army to reinforce their economy uh, there is also a question of sanctions how sanctions will, what kind of sanctions will continue which will not continue and then they will reattack ukraine later so uh, the expectations were different seen from turkey and from ukraine but in a result there were several declarations coming from president zelensky and some other high officials here and we understood that there were no real um, agreement on any kind of peace deal now but still there was a kind of a hidden message from uh, erdogan because he met putin two times at least two times recently and maybe there was a kind of a message coming from putin to zelensky via erdogan um so and this message these propositions are still not accepted by the ukrainian side but at the same time um, 
the huge framework, there were several issues discussed during this meeting, important issues for Ukraine, starting from the grain, grain exportations, which are extremely important for Ukraine. The agreements were signed in late J- July, so we already we have already already lived one month of these agreements, and uh, uh, a lot of ships have already left Ukrainian ports in Odessa, in other cities, and uh, they were discussing how to enlarge and how to secure these these agreements and how to to multiply maybe the effect and multiply the number of ships which are leaving Ukrainian ports in order to export more. Let's remind that Ukraine needs to export this grain in order to to make some room, some place for, for, for the harvest of this year, because the pro- problem is not only to export, but also to, to create some possibility to record, to, to record the harvest of this year. And the results are here. They are quite modest, but uh, we do hope that this uh, story will be successful, I mean, with exportations. And once again, situation and in Energodar was also discussed during this meeting between Guterres, uh, Erdogan and Zelensky. Uh, but this story is to be followed. Let's maybe come uh, to the conclusion of our podcast and uh, we will end with two very positive developments. One is that uh, Ukrainian volunteers have purchased a satellite so this is the when we understand when we say sometimes that ukrainian nation is today a a, a nation capable of the impossible so these are the, the news that are coming quite often when ukrainian volunteers or ukrainian soldiers or ukrainian uh, government or ukrainian civil society is doing something which is which seems to be impossible so buying a satellite a satellite which will help uh, Ukraine a lot with the intelligence, with understanding what is happening on the ground. Can you tell 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 us a little bit more? About this is it? extremely interesting story because it started several weeks ago, where a famous volunteer here, Sergei Pritula, he announced the crowdfunding for Bayraktars, for Turkish drones Bayraktars, and Ukrainians just in a couple of days were able to collect, if I'm not mistaken, six hundred million grivnas. Uh, which is some enough for four Bayraktars. Uh, let's remind that these drones, these Turkish drones, played a very important role during this war because they were destroying a lot of military military um, objectives in the Russian army. So poor country, country in a war, and it and, and money money collected was collected around. Ordinary Ukrainians. There were no oligarchs, no rich, really rich people. So everybody contributed. We also contributed to these Bayraktars. But then it was a story of a solidarity of Turkish company producing these Bayraktars because they refused to take money and they delivered all four Bayraktars just for free. So this volunteer fund of Pretula, they still had this money and they asked. Ukrainian army on the, and the Ukrainian defense minister how it will be how they suggest to use it and that came this idea of this satellite so this uh, satellite which will allow Ukrainian army to see 
almost, almost everything on the ground because they say that for one pixel and on this image, they have, you have only 25 centimeters. It means, in fact, that you see everything and even these uh, ordinary drones we use uh, ordin- um, every day to see what is happening on the ground, on the battlefield, they will in a way be not, not useless, but they will be um, complemented by the satellite images. So another question, how to get these satellite images to every um, point uh, on the battlefield when they are needed. But they say that on the, on the images you can see even soldiers. So you can, you can count soldiers. You can see what kind of vehicles Russians use. You can see even underground, a little bit underground. So a lot of information... Uh, a lot of information, useful information. And the most important here is that Russia, they don't have um, the same system. They try to use, they try to make, to, to use, uh, at least they asked Iran for the same service of satellite service, but Iran, uh, which used the satellite service for, for Israel, they refused to provide these images. So we can say now that Ukrainians, they see better now than Russia. And this is a, Something you cannot imagine because Russia always uh, presented itself like a, uh, you know, like a country with a very, um, very um, huge and very powerful cosmic uh, uh, army and cos- uh, all these type of things. But now we see that Ukraine, Ukraine is stronger and it is stronger not because of the help of international partners or United States. Ordinary Ukrainians made it possible. Yes, indeed. And this uh, also shows uh, how Ukrainian uh, society is organized. It is really organized with bottom-up processes, not with top-down. It's not a society of people implementing, executing orders. It's a society of people who is who are taking initiative on themselves or supporting the initiative uh, of others. Why satellites are important? Because we understand that in today's war, it's not even that much important how much art- how much artillery you have. It's important how precise are your strikes, how precise are your strikes, giving the uh, the big disadvantage that Ukraine has compared to to the Russian army, much lesser uh, amount of artillery of ammunition, dependence on the Western supplies. Of course, having these powerful eyes from the space is is really very important. And the last uh, news, the last positive news, the news of tonight, Ukrainian boxer Alexander Ulsik has defeated uh, a British boxer, Anthony Jesha, uh, in, a, in a very interesting boxing fight uh, this night. And uh, he just defended his title of the, of the world champion. Let me remind that uh, some time ago, I think it was, it was 11 months ago, Usyk has uh, beaten Joshua, and now this was a revenge fight. And uh, actually, there was twelve rounds. I watched this this um, uh, this battle. Usually, the boxing battle is twelve rounds, and twelve rounds, th- three minutes each. And that means that there was no clear winner. Nobody has made a knockdown, a knockout. And uh, after the fight, Joshua was very upset, and it seems that he thinks that the decision was not fair because the judges were co- were you know, counting, counting, uh, counting, you know, 
points, uh, who, who, which Wixbox was was more successful, more precise, etc. But the fact that the Joshua made, made a, a emotional speech afterwards, he he praised Usyk, but at the same time, as far as I understood, maybe I'm I'm, I'm just getting it wrong, that he was really upset about this. But um, Usyk is has defended this fight and the most this title, and the most interesting thing is that. In the rounds eight and nine, Usyk was in a very difficult situation. So Joshua was really beating him. And many people, many observers were thinking that, well, the fight is over. Uh, Usyk will not, not, not be strong enough to come back. And miraculously, in the round 10, I think, he just came back. I mean, he, he really, it was, it was, it was like in a, in a, in a typical Hollywood movie, right? That the, the main character, is almost beaten and then he is almost like on his knees and then he suddenly regenerates or resurrects. Maybe there is also a metaphor of the Ukrainian fight right now. Yeah, and maybe even more importantly than at the end of the battle he he mentioned Ukraine, he mentioned Ukrainian army and he said that his victory is the name of Ukrainian armed forces and all citizens, uh, men and women who support who 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 resist now. Yes, and this is important because Usyk is, um, I would say, the ambiguous character in the Ukrainian uh, society because uh, he showed some uh, sympathy to the to the Russian church, for example. He is a, a member of, of the, the church that we call Russian church, which is a Ukrainian church of Moscow patriarchy. He really th- seems to be connected to these, uh, to these circles, to this milieu, uh, he was ambiguous about Crimea publicly, uh, denying uh, to say that Crimea is Ukraine because it seems that he, he, he had property there. But uh, there is a very interesting, very interesting transformation which, is, uh, which has happened precisely after the 24th of February. And initially he joined the territorial defense. So he took a, a Kalashnikov in Kiev. And then after after serving in the territorial defense in Kiev, he said he would rather prefer go and prepare for the for the revenge fight. And uh, indeed, the, this fight was much more difficult for him than the previous one. So Joshua was much better prepared. For you to understand, Joshua is two meters high, tall, and Usyk is, I think, um, one hundred ninety centimeters. So also very tall, but but uh, but shorter. And uh, he has ten kilograms less than Joshua, so so the, there is a little a little difference between them. Okay, so we see that Ukrainian sports, despite all this tragic and dramatic war, continues to uh, to to be also on the level, and this is also very very important for Ukrainian society as well, of course. Uh, this was a podcast explaining Ukraine. Uh, explaining Ukraine is brought to you by Ukraine World. Ukraine World is a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolnko, Ukrainian philosopher and journalist and host of this podcast and uh, chief editor of ukraineworld.org. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me remind that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Ukraine World. We spend the majority of your support to help people 
affected by this war to travel across Ukraine to help the volunteers and to volunteer ourselves. Thank you for listening to us and uh, thank you, thank you for sharing our content. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.